today on Against the Grain. Sri Lanka's decades-long civil war ended more than a decade ago, but a now silent war continues in that island nation, a war waged against the minority Tamil population. I'm CS. We'll revisit a conversation with Anurada Mittal about the struggle for justice and accountability in Sri Lanka, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. It's been a long, exhausting struggle, at times for independence, at times for autonomy, at all times for freedom from systematic persecution and dispossession. In the face of land grabs and forced displacement that my guest says continue to this day, the Tamil people and their allies persist in their efforts to hold the Sri Lankan government and military accountable. Tamils are a minority population in Sri Lanka, a country still recovering from a 26-year-long civil war that pitted the Sinhalese central authorities against the Tamil Tiger rebels in the country's north and east. But a dozen years after the civil war's conclusion, traditional Tamil homelands are still under military occupation, thousands of forcibly displaced civilians remain in limbo, and policies rooted in Sinhala nationalist fervor continue to actively suppress Tamil history and culture. So claims a series of reports released by the Oakland Institute, an independent policy think tank. The latest iteration is entitled Endless War, the Destroyed Land, Life, and Identity of the Tamil People in Sri Lanka. The report is based on field research conducted by a team of Oakland Institute researchers in Sri Lanka. Later this hour, I'll talk with Anurada Mittal, the Institute's executive director, about the new report. Now, Anurada also authored the Institute's landmark 2015 report on the situation of Tamils in Sri Lanka. And we begin today's program with portions of a conversation we had about that report, because it lays out key historical background and other information on which the Oakland Institute's most recent report is based. I referred to the fact that Sri Lanka achieved its independence from Britain in 1948, and I asked Anurada Mittal how the Tamil minority population was viewed and treated back then. Well, I think in 1948, when Sri Lanka gained independence, that's when the discriminatory policies against the Tamils moved in. And here we're talking about the Sri Lankan Tamils. Very often people confuse uh, the Sri Lankan Tamils to be Indian Tamils. Indian Tamils were brought in by the British uh, in the late, uh, you know, in 1800s, really to work as laborers on the tea plantations. But the Sri Lankan Tamils are indigenous to the island nation and have been there. And in fact, before independence, the Sinhalese and the Sri Lankan Tamils could work together to demand freedom and for the independence. But come 1948, the Sinhalese majority basically came up with policies that would establish the island nation to be a Sinhalese state. This included policies of Sinhala only as a language. Uh, There was violence, discrimination. The Indian Tamils who were brought in and had lived in the country for a few generations were stripped of their nationality. So it suddenly changed in 1948 when nationalism came to mean being a Sinhala state. And so one could say that there was sort of systematic discrimination against the Tamil population since then, I mean, over a period of decades? Oh, definitely. As our report shows that there has been a systematic discrimination against the Tamils, and not just discrimination, there have been efforts to so-called Sinhalize the Tamil lands. When I say Tamil lands, if you look at the geography of the country, North and East have always had the Tamils as the majority. So since independence, various kind of activities and projects were launched with the intent to change the demographics of the North and the East. Uh, For instance, our report details some of the so-called development projects, which were actually launched under the name of making lands available to the landless. But really, they saw landless 
actually being the people from the south being moved into north and east to change the demographics. And today it is pretty shocking that in the east, you know, you have less Tamils. You know, they're no longer a majority. And if you look at over the last 70, 80 years, what has happened, you can see the trend, how very systematically they've been moved out, they've been displaced, and the lands, everything which is fertile, have been taken over by people from the South. What about violence against the Tamils? I mean, a lot of people would associate the civil war that began in 1983 with kind of systematic violence against the Tamils. But your report indicates that there were there were pogroms of a sort even before that time. Yes, that was the shocking thing as we started our research, that since independence, there had been several pogroms against the Tamils where they were subjected to violence, their homes were destroyed, burned down. Uh, for instance, uh, the protest, the nonviolent protest against the Sinhala Only Act, which happened in Colombo, led to violence across the country where the Tamils were targeted. Just yesterday was the anniversary of the burning down of the Jaffna Library, when in the 80s, this library, I mean, Jaffna was the cultural center, center of, you know, intellectuals and university, you know, a library which was home to very unique, over 90,000 manuscripts and books. That library was burned down to destroy this vibrant cultural place. And it is all of that discrimination, the violence, the killings that finally led to basically gave, giving birth to a separatist movement. So we have to really understand as to what led to the creation of this so-called violence that led to two parties to go to war, uh, one represented by the LTTE at the end and the other by the Sri Lankan state. And the LTTE is the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam? That's correct. Right. So the Civil War took place from 1983 to 2009, 26 years. What do you wish to emphasize about the, the fighting that took place between the Sri Lankan central government and military and the Tamil Tigers? Well, you know, in the course of doing this report, uh, there's several things that become very obvious. These 26 years were marred by violence on both sides, huge losses on both sides. On one hand, devastation and destruction of the North and East in a way that one cannot imagine. But at the same time, people living in fear in Colombo, uh, suicide bombs, not knowing when the bombs in a bus would go off. So there was a lot of fear. And also it had huge implications on the economic stability of the country as a large part of the budget was dedicated to maintaining these huge military forces, Air Force, Navy, and the Army, which unfortunately continues even today. The other thing that I think we have to really remember while we talk about the violence, the conclusion of the war is something that, as international community, we need to take note of. The way the war ended was in an extremely brutal, bloody manner, in which, despite the presence of the UN and international agencies, the civilians, innocent civilians, especially in the North, were basically shelled indiscriminately by the Sri Lankan forces. In fact, the United Nations report estimate that at least three no-fly zone areas were shelled upon by the Sri Lankan government, killing innocent civilians, including children and men and women. And uh, even today, we do not know how many people are unaccounted for. Some reports estimate that nearly 70,000 people are missing, unaccounted for, whereas the Bishop of Manar has quoted that over 146,000 people are missing, unaccounted for. Uh, thousands and thousands of people died just in the month of May in 2009. There has been no closure despite the ending of a war for people all over the country, but especially in the north and the east. That means a lot of families torn apart and a lot of widows. It is estimated that there are nearly 90,000 war widows in the north and east. Just in the eastern state, there are nearly 50,000 war widows. Uh, in the course of a fieldwork, um, you know, not to generalize, but I was stunned by just in a day, the, you know, over 100 or so women who came who were war widows, you know, in their early 30s, a lot of them uh, with young children who don't know what happened to their husband. Some of them had actually submitted or surrendered, sorry, their husband 
at the end of the war, as they were advised by the Sri Lankan army that the former combatants or anyone linked to LTTE would be rehabilitated. I saw their ICRC reports. They handed them over uh, at the Oman Thai checkpoint, at this other checkpoint. Two, three months later, those men have been missing. Since then, they have been told to you know, sign a death certificate, accept a meager compensation. But they've all refused because they're looking for answers. They want to know what happened to their husband. And many people were, I'm using a term from your report, but it's a term used in Sri Lanka, were white vaned. What does that mean? White vaned basically came to mean people who were abducted and taken away in white vans and never seen again. So this is the disappearances of people. They might have been journalists, political activists, uh, considered to be, you know, Tamil Tigers, taken away not just by Sri Lankan army, but by paramilitary troops as well. So that's what white van means. Now, following the end of the Civil War in 2009, provincial elections took place in the north, and they were won by the Tamil National Alliance. So what does this mean for the ability of the Tamil population to take control of their social and political destiny? Well, as you mentioned, it was after the end of the war and after a lot of international pressure, especially from India, the elections were held in the north, and for the first time, a Tamil representative, Chief Minister Vigneswaram, was elected in and sworn into office. But it has been very interesting. You would think that this really allows the Tamil community to accomplish their economic and political aspirations. Now, just to give you an instance, in the north, uh, some of the lands have been taken over to, for instance, for this beach resort called Hotel Thalsevana. Uh, you and I could actually call the Ministry of Defense and uh, book a room in this luxury resort. It's a seven-star hotel. It is in the northern province. However, the chief minister, if he wanted to visit those areas where his people have been displaced from and they continue to live in internally displaced camps, while the government of Sri Lanka says that no more IDP camps uh, remain, he has to get the permission from the Ministry of Defense to be able to enter that area. So one would hope that after the conflict ended in 2009, that the military occupation of the north and the east of Sri Lanka would, would either stop or would be reduced. What's been the actual situation? Well, one of the reasons we embarked on this project was to really investigate these claims, you know, for instance, from Lonely Planet of Forbes, that Sri Lanka is the tourist destination or it is a place for investment or there's peace and stability. And what our research and time spent on the ground demonstrated is that in contrast with reports of peace and stability, six years after the end of the war, the North and the East are still under very heavy military occupation. There is one army personnel for every six civilians, one army personnel for every six people in the north and the east. If you look at a place like Vavunia, which is in the north, there is one army personnel for every three civilians. So basically, the continued military occupation of the north continues not just since 2009, but this is also the policy of the new government, where the Minister of Defense has very clearly conveyed the message to the troops in the northern peninsula that there will be no changes made to any kind of army formations in the north. There will be no movement or exodus of troops from the north. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. You are listening to an interview I conducted with Anurada Mittal shortly after the 2015 publication of an Oakland Institute report called The Long Shadow of War, The Struggle for Justice in Postwar Sri Lanka. Stay tuned for a discussion with Anurada, the Institute's executive director, about a new report that updates the situation of the Tamil population in Sri Lanka. That's coming up shortly. For more context and background, we return to additional portions of my interview with Anurada about the long shadow of war. Well, when we talk about military occupation, I mean, I think about military installations, and you just mentioned a resort. So what are the various ways in which the Sri Lankan military and government are using lands that they have taken forcibly from the Tamil population? 
You know, that's a very good question because uh, when you first think of continued military occupation of the North and the East, you tend to think this must be for security concerns. Definitely a lot of rhetoric of the return of the LTT is used to promote uh, this presence of these troops. But uh, on investigation, we find that the army is running whale-watching excursions, they're running beach resorts, they're running hotel operations. They are engaged in every form of commercial activity. In case of Sampur, uh, which is another contested area where people were uh, had to flee under shelling, and the previous president, Rajapaksha, claimed that that was done to free the lands for the local people, but the local people have been in camps since the army took over Sampur. And in fact, the Board of Investment had given away 800 acres of some land. Uh, the Indian government is planning to build a coal power plant. The other astonishing thing in all of these cases, whether we look at Sampur, whether we look at Walakam North, there were homes, there were schools, there were temples, places of worship. In case of Sampur, they were all there even in 2010. They were destroyed after the war was over. So homes and properties, places of worship, schools, government buildings were destroyed to set up a naval base and to set up a coal power plant and to attract foreign investment, while the people of those areas continue to live in welfare centers. In the case of Walakam North, as I mentioned, there's um, the presence of army who are running different kind of commercial activities, and some of the lands have been released. And that's what the response of the new Sri Lankan government is. But we need to remember, these are not the same fertile lands that the people were evicted from. In case of Walakam North, over 6,000 acres were taken away. Some 1,000 acres have been released, which are infertile lands. And there's no talk about what happens to Hotel Thalsevna, the seven-star hotel. Will it be raised to the ground like the homes of the people were raised to the ground so and infrastructure provided so they can build their homes again? And your report also indicates that the government, the military, is actually farming some of this land that they took. Yes, definitely in the north, some of the lands that have been taken away, like in Palali, these were very, very fertile lands. They have been taken over by the army. They're farming those lands. Uh, They bring the produce to the markets because they themselves work on those farms. You know, the cost of production is less, so they are selling it below the cost of the other producers, and capturing the markets of the North. So it is a complete takeover, not just politically, not just through the, you know, uh, through the presence of the army, but also economically. All right. So IDPs, internally displaced people. So these are people displaced from their homes, but stay within the country. How many IDPs do we know exist, still live in Sri Lanka? I think it is very safe to say thousands of people are still internally displaced from their homes. It is hard to give you an accurate figure because some of the people who are supposedly being resettled have been forced to go to places which are not their homes or they have gone where they're not even basic facilities. For instance, some of the land which has been released now in the north, people have been sent to these makeshift tents. So they are displaced yet once again, but this time on their own lands. Uh, In other instances, People have been moved to places against their will. So the government will count them as being settled, but they're not really settled. So in the report, we do highlight, for instance, and, and we, you know, the research team went to the IDP camps. We went to Camp Nithavan, for instance, uh, and another camp. There's several camps together which house the populations from Walekam North. So in case of Camp Nithavan, it was incredible that this camp, which was built over two decades ago, Uh, meant to house certain number of families. And since they have not been moved back to their homes despite the end of the war, despite their going to courts, despite their protest, uh, the number of families has almost doubled. I met people who were born on that camp. They only know of Palali. They only know of these fertile lands which, which have fertile soils, you know, great farms which are amazing for fishing. So it is like this Shangri-La they dream of, and yet the reality is uh, this uh, slum-like, very squalid living conditions with no electricity, no safety for children or for young girls in the camps. Well, when I think of refugee camps, I think at least of 
NGO aid or international aid or agency aid, maybe food, medicine, supplies coming into these camps? What's the situation there? Well, given the people of Sampur, for instance, or the people of Palali have been protesting, they have filed lawsuits, they have challenged and shared their reality. For instance, when UK Prime Minister Cameron went to Jaffna, they made sure they heard and witnessed uh, the conditions they were living in, following which the government of Sri Lanka declared that there are no more internally displaced peoples in the country. And that meant that they will have no longer any access to any NGOs. They have no food rations. They have no basic services which a refugee camp would otherwise be able to have. So these people have been left on their own with no infrastructure, no economic support, no jobs, and no possibility of intervention by a local or national or international NGO. Right, and this is important to emphasize, as you do in this report. Uh, this report is called The Long Shadow of War. It's just recently put out by the Oakland Institute, that people have lost livelihoods, right? So they used to farm, they used to fish, they used to have their own ways of making money, and that's not available to them. What kind of impact has that had on them financially as well as psychologically? You know, it's a kind of devastation which is not just economic. As you say, it is very deep. It is spiritual. It is psychological. People who had, you know, a good life, as I was told. We had a good life. We could fish. We could farm. We had schools. We had education. Everything has been taken away from them uh, for no crime other than the fact that they're Tamil for no crime other than that they are not a majority Sinhalese. So with that, you find people surviving on less than $20, $22 a month. So not even a dollar a day. Doing what? They are looking for jobs as a coolie or a porter. Uh, you know, they are monitored when they come out of the so-called camp. Uh, some of the camps have army camps within them, or they're very closely monitored that when I was there in December, just before the elections, that they're not speaking to outsiders. So they can't go too far to get jobs. So they try to find whatever little job they can in the neighborhood, uh, which also means that they're exploited in terms of wages they're paid. They don't really have a much of a bargaining power. The big issue also that I was told over and over again, nobody will marry their girls. You know, they're identified as IDPs. So I met these young women who have no future because nobody would marry them from outside. Uh, so they are limited to the possibility of marriage just within their camp itself. Another big issue that was raised over and over again is one of education for the children. You know, so many families said, well, there was a war. We were victims of that. The war is over. But what about a different future for our children? You know, people would push forward their five, six-year-old. Sorry. Well, to the researchers, they would put forward their five, six-year-old and say, all I want is an edu education for this child. Your report also goes into certain irrigation schemes. Now, this sounds, you know, kind of utilitarian, right? People need water to water their crops, and so they set up these schemes. And yet, you characterize some of these schemes as forms of instances of state-sponsored colonization. So can you uh, give us an example of an irrigation scheme that has been used to uh, displace people? Sure. Our report details several of these irrigation schemes. Uh, let me talk about one, Veli Oya, which is very interesting because uh, Veli Oya scheme started in an area which uh, was linked to the border villages. Border villages were the villages after which the Tamil Tigers territory started. So Veli Oya was an effort apparently to irrigate lands, make lands fertile, but it started off by changing and giving a Sinhala name and a literal translation of the former Tamil area called Manal Aru, which means river sand. So the name was first Sinhalized. And then secondly, the administration of that was taken away from uh, the districts that were neighboring it, such as Vavunia and others. And in the right was given to the administrative offices in, in Anuradhapura. So you were completely changing the political control of Veli Oya. But more important, once that happened, 
deals were cancelled, land deals were cancelled. For instance, uh, the dollar farms that existed and, you know, some of the Tamil businesses had rights to be able to farm these big lands. They were cancelled. And in fact, prisoners from the south were brought in to occupy those lands and uh, to make them sinhala farms. It resulted in a lot of violence. LTTE, the Tamil Tigers, responded by, you know, having violent acts which resulted in some 60-some people killed, which became the excuse for the Sri Lankan army then to move in and declare that the terrorist had been killed. But the alternative accounts show uh, how brutally women and children were killed, but it was really over land. The other thing you need to understand when you look at irrigation schemes, you realize how crucial land is and was to the whole conflict. It is not just about two different religions at war. This is about economic resources. This is about land. This is about how the Sinhala majority coming in from the south is taking over fertile, rich lands of a minority, the Tamil minority, which then escalates into violence and further escalates into a full-blown civil war. Now, Tamils, as you said, are concentrated in the north and the east, and there has been kind of a sense of a possible unified Tamil homeland. I mean, that was the the dream, and people were working for that dream. What's happened because of some of these military and government activities to this idea or the possibility that, in fact, you could take the North and East and connect them and form some sort of Tamil autonomous region, at least? Well, I think that was one of the biggest fears of the Sri Lankan Sinhala majority, that given the North and the East were populated by the Tamils, who were the majority, that they might aspire to merge and uh, form an independent state or some kind of an autonomous state. So it is fascinating if you look at the so-called development schemes, like the irrigation schemes, which start not just changing the demographics of the two provinces, but they also start splitting the two that the merger of the two would become impossible. So, for instance, the whole Veli Oya scheme played a key role in that. And just some of the things that were done, for instance, in the report uh, we mentioned, uh, the villages that were created because of these irrigation schemes, they would set up, say, a vihara with a big bell and say, as far as the bell can be heard, the sound of the bell, uh, those would be Buddhist lands or Sinhala lands. So it was very deliberately done to make sure that there is no united front because the biggest fear was that there might be a demand for a separate state. Anurada Mittal is her name. She's founder and executive director of the Oakland Institute, an independent policy think tank, and she's an expert on development, human rights, and agricultural issues. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. You've been listening to portions of an interview conducted on the heels of the 2015 publication of the Institute's first report, on the war waged by the Sri Lankan government and military against the minority Tamil population. The findings of that report have been periodically updated by the Oakland Institute. The latest iteration, the latest report in the series, was recently issued with the title Endless War, the Destroyed Land, Life, and Identity of the Tamil People in Sri Lanka. Anurada is principal author of the report, which is based on field research conducted by a team of Oakland Institute researchers in Sri Lanka. When Anurada Mittal and I connected recently, she began with this update on the appropriation and confiscation of Tamil lands. A new research actually points to an increase in land grabbing in recent years. You're talking about thousands of acres of land which have been confiscated to allow the settlement of Sinhalese in traditional Tamil areas. You're talking about huge amounts of land which continue to be militarized and taken away. What is interesting, however, is the use of different government departments, including the Housing Authority, Forest Department, Wildlife Department, and even the Archaeological Department being deployed uh, in this government strategy to take over the traditional Tamil lands and have them Sinhalized. Can you give us any specifics on the size of the areas confiscated by the Sri Lankan government? 
Well, if you look at the Mulaitivu district, which is in the northern province, the military has acquired more than 30,000 acres of public and private land. Now, this is about 15% of land which is available for public use in Mulaitivu district. So when you start adding up, you know, takeover of lands for viharas, you know, the Buddhist temples, or for military camps, or the fact that you have five of the seven Sri Lankan Army's regional headquarters located in the north and eastern provinces, you're talking about thousands of hectares of land which are being taken away with a very deliberate intent to signalize the north and east, with the strategy being to, first of all, to break up ethnically and geographically connected the two provinces, but to also destroy uh, the Tamil homeland doctrine of the minority population. You call in this report, you call this taking of land colonization. Uh, why? If you look at the history of Sri Lanka, when there has been very deliberate attempts by the Sinhalese government to take over lands that have traditionally belonged to the Tamil population and to make a deliberate attempt to Sinhalese villages, to Sinhalese the rivers, to Sinhalese, you know, the temples which have existed for generations and instead put up, you know, military uh, camps or even uh, Buddhist temples. This is really about colonizing the lands of the minority population with the intent to deliberately send the message that Sri Lanka is a Sinhalese state. And this is the colonizing, the use of resources of the communities that have traditionally lived in areas, especially the north and the eastern provinces, which comprises nearly one-third of the country's area. And it's about as well, uh, as you indicate in this report, changing the demographics, correct? Well, what we expose in this latest report, Endless War, is that since the last report that we published six years ago, nearly six years ago, uh, Sri Lanka is headed to increasingly becoming an ethnocratic state. There's a very deliberate strategy of the government, especially since 2019, since the Rajapakshas are back in power as the president and prime minister of the country. Uh, Rajapakshas who were in power at the time of the brutal end of the civil war in 2009, you see a very systematic way of taking over lands, colonizing the lands in the north and east, uh, a process of Sinhalization where the Sinhalese population is being moved from the south to take over the lands in the north and east. Uh, it is all happening in the name of development, for instance, under the Mahabali irrigation schemes. And yet in the last seven years, not a drop of water has come to the Tamil villages. Instead, you see the lands which are to be resettled, uh, where the IDPs, the internally displaced population, was to be resettled. They continue to wait for the return to their home and lands. So this is a very deliberate strategy of the Sri Lankan government today to send a clear message that this is about uh, dismantling the homeland doctrine of the Tamil population, the North and East. And, and in the report, we offer the details on how the government-led uh, effort is actually aimed at geographically fragmenting the North and East. And it is accompanied by a strategy to systematically erase Tamil culture and history. So for instance, the report documents the temples which have disappeared. Instead, uh, the Buddhist Vihars are being built on those places, the takeover of land for Buddhist temples. And that comes along with military camps, which are there to provide security to the new Sinhalese settlements, as well as to these Buddhist viharas. What has the military presence done to people's ability to make a living, including via fishing and agriculture? Well, I think it is really important to first understand the level of militarization that continues uh, nearly 12 years after the end of the civil war in Sri Lanka. When we look at uh, the last report, and now, the military occupation remains extreme, uh, with roughly one military personnel for every six civilians. This is when the government says that LTTE, the separatist Tamil movement, is no longer a threat. Despite that, there are at least seven army camps and five naval bases located just 15 kilometers from the village of Alampil to the village of Kokilai in Mulatibu. Mulatibu is the theater of war in 2009. So then these bases continue to be there. 
As I mentioned before, five of the seven Sri Lankan Army's regional headquarters are located in the north and the eastern provinces. In the Mulaitivu district, this has resulted in the military actually acquiring more than 30,000 acres of public and private land. So massive military presence, it is basically meant for providing security for the settlements while facilitating the sinhalization process and keeping the population in the north and east under constant intimidation, under constant oppression. So one has to really look at the lives of people under military occupation. We found that just as in 2015, the military continues to run five-star resorts. It continues to run cafes, construction companies, and it cultivates the land it occupies. So this heavy presence of army has severely impacted the lives and livelihoods of the local population, uh, which has had disastrous impact on agriculture as well as the fisheries. In our report, we detail how some of the fishing communities have seen a complete end of their fishing you know, livelihood with this takeover of their uh, lands and the presence of the military. And at the same time, we find that there are a number of high security zones under military control, which has prevented the resettlement of Tamil population, which was displaced during the war. So some of the camps that we talked about in a 2015 report, 12 years later, we find that the communities are still waiting to return home. They have been displaced from their homes for more than 30 years now. You referred to the internally displaced population, the Tamil communities and people who were displaced during the decades-long war that ended in 2009. Yeah, give us an update on what's happened or not happened in terms of resettling them. Well, the problem in the Walikamam north of Jaffna district, which had been allowed for resettlement, continues to be a huge problem. It has large military camps, military bungalows on private land, the life of displacement, living in IDP camps uh, that started over 30 years ago now still continues for the people. So just to kind of have an estimate in terms of people in the Jaffna district, 23,000 people are still waiting to be resettled in their native lands. 23,000 people. More than 1,300 people are living in the 22 camps. So they still exist there. While thousands have been forced to live with relatives or rent houses. So in terms of resettlement, the promises that were made, uh, that has not been done. And that is very visible if you visit the north of the country, if you are in Jaffna, and to see the IDP camps that were built up over 30 years ago are still there with populations still living there. Mahinda Rajapaksha, you said that he became prime minister. This is his latest term in that office. In late 2019, he was prime minister earlier. Why is he such a bad steward of Sri Lanka in terms of the attitude, the stance the government takes toward the Tamil people and the lands in which they reside? It is important for us to understand how the war ended in 2009. It was in violation of every international law as the innocent civilians, children, women were shelled in no-fly zones. At that time, the president of the country was Mahinda Rajapaksha. The defense minister was his brother Gotabaya Rajapaksha. When we released the report in 2015, there was a new government under Sirisena. And, and it's important to remember, Sirisena came into power by promising reconciliation, by promising peace and justice and accountability, by promising resettlement of people. However, Sirisena administration completely failed the minority population in fulfilling any of those promises. There were no truth commissions. There was no accountability uh, around war crimes. In 2019, you find that the Rajapaksha brothers come back into power, and this time not on the promises of reconciliation, but by fueling nationalism and nationalism being that Sri Lanka will be a Sinhalese state. Their hard stance towards the minority populations, whether it is Tamil or Muslim, has been much in the news. The portrayal of the Tamil and Muslim population as terrorists to be dealt with. So you really have two war criminals from 2009 now back in power. Let's not forget that even before Gotabaya Rajapaksha ran for uh, the elections in the country, there was a lawsuit brought in the state of California by a daughter 
of an assassinated journalist against this man. And unfortunately, as he won the elections and therefore has impunity, uh, you have two war criminals running the country. You have several other war criminals who are actually in charge of the military and army again. There has been no justice. There has been no accountability as uh, people continue to be displaced, as their lands continue to be taken away. But more important, there is no solution and answer and accountability for the way the war ended with in violation of international law, in violation of humanitarian law, and the thousands who remain missing. Sri Lanka, you know, by size, a small country, an island nation, has the second largest number of the disappeared people after Argentina. Families are still waiting for the answers while these war criminals are back in power as the president and prime minister of the country. Anuradha Mittal is my guest. She is founder and executive director of the Oakland Institute and principal author of the Institute's new report, Endless War, The Destroyed Land, Life, and Identity of the Tamil People in Sri Lanka. You can check out information about Anuradha and get access to this report, Endless War, by visiting our website, againstthegrain.org. I'm CS, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. The United Nations has been, I don't know how active you would call it in relation to the the struggle uh, for Tamil rights and uh, dignity and land and survival in Sri Lanka, but it has been uh, somewhat active. There have been Human Rights Council resolutions. Uh, the High Commissioner for Human Rights of the UN issued a report on Sri Lanka this past January. What are what are the highlights uh, over the last few years of, of what the United Nations has been trying to effect in Sri Lanka? Well, as you mentioned, CS, they have been resolution after resolution at the United Nations around Sri Lanka. Uh, we were glad to see the report from the Office of the High Commissioner, uh, Bachelet, around Sri Lanka earlier in the year, where she clearly called out the situation is detrimental to peace and stability. She warned against a possible conflict again, given the situation of human rights and uh, the activities and the policies of the current government. So at the 46th session of the United Nations Human Rights Council this March, uh, we at the Oakland Institute put forward this report to bring forward evidence as to what is really going on in the country. It is uh, kind of saddening that the zero draft, which was put together by the core group on Sri Lanka, uh, did not take into account the recommendations of High Commissioner Bachelet, who actually called for uh, uh, an international investigation, who actually called for sanctions against the war criminals. And, and, and I think given the situation that we have, we have been pushing for that there's an immediate obligation on the part of the United Nations and the international community to innovate a safety mechanism to actually monitor and protect and promote the human rights of ethnic Tamil and Muslim communities. And this would actually require appointment of a special rapporteur on land rights for Sri Lanka, given the extent of colonization and dispossession that we have seen by the Sinhalese government against the minorities. And at the same time, we feel that it is absolutely necessary to establish um, the presence, a field presence of the Office of High Commissioner for Human Rights in the country to actually monitor and record ongoing human rights violations. We believe that it is really unfortunate and, uh, and a real um, lack of fulfillment of international justice and failure of international justice mechanisms that the international community has largely remained silent on the persecution of minority Tamil population. Uh, especially with the ongoing efforts of the government to create an ethnocratic state. So um, we are glad that with the lot of work that was done by the diaspora organizations at the Institute, we are proud to work with these Tamil diaspora organizations that it resulted in a new resolution, which does hold the Sri Lankan government accountable for past and ongoing human rights abuses. Uh, more important, the resolution has increased the capacity of the Office of the High Commissioner 
to monitor severe violations of international humanitarian law and request that the office gather evidence for future prosecutions and, and for recommendations on how the international community can deliver on justice and accountability. Having said that, 12 years after the end of the war, where there's not a doubt that severe violations of international human rights law were carried out, when a government shelled its own civilians, that it shelled no-fly zones, at least three of them, that thousands remain still disappeared, that we are still asking the Office of the High Commissioner to gather evidence for future prosecutions. The prosecution needs to happen now. The victims, the people who suffered, are waiting for an answer now. So um, I think there's still a long road to justice, to be honest, for, for the people of, uh, of Sri Lanka, the, the victims of the violence by the state in Sri Lanka, there's a long road to go. Um, so we can celebrate yet another resolution with the language, but does it deliver what the victims need? I would have to say it fails to do so. And when you talk about international justice mechanisms, you mean, at least in part, the International Criminal Court, I imagine. Is there a way in which the ICC can you know, unilaterally step in and uh, invoke its way of adjudicating things within the Sri Lankan situation? Well, in case of Sri Lanka, it is not a member of the International Criminal Court. And I think this is the biggest question for the international community. When we look at victims of mass atrocities, we have failed as international community to really deliver justice, whether it is Sri Lanka, whether it is Rwanda, whether it is uh, Cambodia. You might have a few individuals sanctioned, but we as humanity have failed communities and victims of mass atrocities to actually deliver justice. Now, what you see is international geopolitics at play. On one hand, Security Council of the United Nations, looking at the facts, could decide to set up a precedent to ensure justice for war victims. However, with international geopolitics, when you see the Sri Lankan government uh, playing politics to woo China, for instance, or and, and to afford it, uh, you know, all kinds of rights, construction rights, building ports, marine routes, you suddenly have United States and UK concerned and they try to normalize the relationship with Sri Lanka. So instead of coming from a place of morality and international human rights, we have seen governments uh, actually look at geopolitics, what is in their personal interest and forget that the victims are wanting peace or wanting justice. You have the government of India. If it talks about and pushes for international you know, mechanisms such as International Criminal Court, I'm sure it is concerned about international inquiry into what it's doing in Kashmir. When we talk about militarization, India is no different with a very heavily militarized Kashmir. So when you have those situations, what happens is that the victims of war, of violations of human rights abuses, and some people would say that what the Tamils have faced amounts to genocide, they're left waiting for justice. And that is why we call this report Endless War. It is not that war ended in 2009, that war continues as the minority populations continue to be persecuted, continue to be dispossessed, continue to be terrorized with no end in sight and no delivery of justice. And that is why the Tamil population, the international human rights community has called for international community's obligation. This is not a Sri Lankan problem. This is an international problem of human rights violations. And as long as this is allowed to happen in Sri Lanka, it becomes okay for another country to do the same. It becomes okay for another elected government to bomb its own people, to shell no-fly zones and end wars in this way. So there's the, the government, and of course, then there is the, the people, the population of a country. Uh, Sri Lanka is majority Sinhalese Buddhist. What is your sense of the degree to which the population, the Sinhalese majority population of Sri Lanka stands behind the government oppression and abuse and dispossession of the Tamils? Or do you feel like there is a, a marked disagreement between uh, the population and the government in this area? 
You know, an ethnocratic state is really built by fueling nationalism and by fueling religion. Uh, in case of Sri Lanka, this has been done in a very systematic way over several decades. So you have a country where the majority feel that if they're the majority, uh, it has to be a Sinhalese state. I think we are offered valuable lessons when we look at Sri Lanka, when we, we look at what happened in Rwanda or what happens in Israel. That ethnocratic states are built by fueling this sense of a insecurity. If you don't have a heavy hand, uh, your rights will be taken away. And this is the fear that is fueled by the government, by continued militarization of the North and East. There is no LTTE anymore. And yet you have uh, in Mulaitivo almost one military personnel for every three civilians. In the North and East, you have one military personnel for every six civilians. So this constant fueling of fear, at the same time, constant fueling of nationalism and this grandiose nationalism that we are patriotic when we are Sinhalese, the idea of having military camps and at the entrance of that, you know, 100 feet tall Buddha statue, uh, it is the combination of the religion and nationalism which has been used by the government for decades, which has left Sri Lanka a very, very divided country. Uh, instead of being a nation state which recognizes uh, the rights of, of the minorities, the Muslim population as well as the Tamils and the Christians. Anuradha Mittal is her name, M-I-T-T-A-L, Executive Director of the Oakland Institute, an independent policy think tank based in Oakland, and she is principal author of the new report, Endless War, The Destroyed Land, Life, and Identity of the Tamil People in Sri Lanka, issued by the Oakland Institute. It's based, the report is, based on field research conducted by a team of Oakland Institute researchers in Sri Lanka. We have links to the report, to the Oakland Institute, and to Anuradha and her work on againstofthegrain.org. Anuradha, thanks for sharing this information and for your work and for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. And that program first aired on May 3rd of this year. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>